Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am so, so happy today, so excited because my guest today is Andy Dick. And if you know anything about Andy Dick, you know that the road is never less traveled. The road is never pretty. There are always bumps in the road. There are always potholes, but in the end, you always get to your destination in a uniquely better place. But as I look at Andy Dick, I think to myself one thing. I am reminded of an NBA Hall of Fame basketball player named Dominic Wilkins. His nickname, The Human Highlight Film. And when I look at Andy Dick... All I can think about is here is a guy who every frame, every frame of every single television program film that this guy has ever been on is magic. It's an incredible thing to sit across from somebody who every moment is a holy shit moment. Every single thing this guy does is laugh out loud funny. And I think to myself, why certain artists are where they are today? Could they be in a different place? What would happen if things went a different way? And when I look at Andy, it's no secret. He's had trouble with the law. He's had trouble on productions. He's been arrested several times. He's gone to rehab maybe 20 different times. 
But yet, when he gets in front of the camera, it's extraordinary. And I think to myself, if the world and the industry never knew any of the things that have happened in Andy's personal life, and they were to just judge him on the performances that he gives in the shows that he's been on and the movies that he's been a part of, he'd probably be one of the greatest comedy actors that we'd be talking about of our generation or any generation. And I can guarantee you I could have Will Ferrell in front of me, I could have Ben Stiller in front of me, I could have Judd Apatow in front of me, and I know they would all say the exact same thing. Andy's a guy who I've known my whole career, many times that I've known him and been a part of his life, and I've also represented him for a portion of his career. You see a person who's struggling, who's sometimes fighting for life, fighting against forces that are sometimes greater than himself. But I think the thing that I love about Andy is every time something goes bad or goes wrong, he takes the steps necessary to help get himself better and back on track again. Whereas many of his peers never were able to do that and lost their lives very early in their careers. So if there's one thing I learn and I think about when I look at Andy, we all have demons. We all have things that we're struggling with, but it's easy to let these things derail your career, especially when you're talented. Sometimes we let these demons get in our way and they take us down. I think Andy would be the first one to tell you to fight off these demons vehemently, but if by chance you can't fight the demons all the time, you should hope that you have the kind of relationships that Andy has, people who will accept the fact that he slipped, but are respectful of the fact that he's gone forward and taken steps to change that pattern and to move forward in a better direction. And I think if anybody out there listening is suffering, you know what you have to do. You know the steps you have to take to get better. And if you're creating the kind of moments in your profession that Andy Dick creates in his, I can guarantee you, you'll have the kind of amazing career that he's had. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Really, really happy and excited today to be around one of the most amazing and talented people that I've ever been around in this business. And I'm talking about Andy Dick. And without further ado, let's give him the proper introduction. Hopefully, he'll be alive afterwards. 
Andy Dick is a multifaceted comedian, writer, and director who's entertained millions on both the small and big screen for nearly three decades. Despite his well-documented struggles with substance abuse and run-ins with the law, Andy has proven himself as a once-in-a-generation performer whose talent and staying power in Hollywood is undeniable. He was born on December 21st, 1965 in Charleston, South Carolina, and was adopted at birth by Alan and Sue Dick. His father was in the Navy, so Dick spent time living with his family in Connecticut, Pennsylvania, New York, and Yugoslavia before moving to Chicago in 1979. After graduating from high school, he joined Chicago's famous Second City, attended Columbia College Chicago, and took improv comedy classes at the Improv Olympic Theater. Dick started his TV career as a cast member on the beloved sketch comedy program, which won the Emmy Award that year, The Ben Stiller Show. In 94, he made sitcom appearances on The Nanny and starred in a Get Smart remake for Fox. But one of his most iconic TV roles came in 1995, portraying Matthew Brock on NBC's News Radio, which ran until 1999. Andy Rhodes starred and directed in all 21 episodes of his own sketch show on MTV, The Andy Dick Show, which ran until 2002. He went on to co-star on the ABC sitcom Less Than Perfect from 2002 to 2006. In 2004, he starred in the satirical reality television show also on MTV called The Assistant. Dick's recent TV guest appearances include CSI, Two Broke Girls, Workaholics, Community, Family Guy, and Love on Netflix. Andy competed in the eighth season of Celebrity Poker Showdown and was a contestant on season 16 of Dancing with the Stars. On film, Dick has had memorable roles in teen comedies like Road Trip and has been featured in several Ben Stiller projects, Relationships, Everybody, including Reality Bites as well as both Zoolander movies. He's also appeared in Old School with Will Ferrell, the documentary The Aristocrats, Employee of the Month with Jessica Simpson and Dane Cook, and in 2009 made an appearance in Judd Apatow's Funny People. Dick has also lent his voice for many animated films, TV shows, and video games, including Hoodwinked, Clone High, Hey Arnold, Dilbert, The Lion King 2, Grand Theft Auto, among others. While under house arrest, Dick created and starred in the five-episode web series House Arrest with Andy Dick. Dick is also the lead singer of comedy band Andy Dick and the Bitches of the Century, and since August has served as co-host of the Dino and Andy's Skull Juice podcast with Dino Stamatopoulos. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, Andy Dick. Oh my God, that was the best intro I've ever had. I'm going to hire you actually for my eulogy (laughs) if I die, which will be very shortly. What are you drinking? Holy crap. This thing I'm drinking, this swamp water, has the base of it about this much is coffee. Do you know that coffee has one, it's one of the highest antioxidant things known to man. That and cacao. Are you still with your girl, Barry? Ooh. Good. We, we can go have fun now. We still love each other. That bitch kept you down. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really liked her, but all girls do that. Mine just moved to Alaska. Yes, I was dating a girl. Two years. 
You've always had the most beautiful women in the world. I could show you a picture, but she would kill me. She's gorgeous. This girl's 22. And how old are you now? 51. God, before I just respected you. Now you're my fucking hero. I know, right? Well, I'm taking after Dennis Hopper. When I, Because my first movie I ever did was with Dennis Hopper. My, I had one scene, and it was with him. <laughs> and we, be, we became friends. Uh, but like all of my friendships, I... I ruined them. So at his wedding reception, he was 65, and he was marrying a 21-year-old ballerina. And I'm like, that's my, that's my guy. But I ruined, I really did kill the... You never killed our relationship. No, I did, but you're just so forgiving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did, though. <laughs> you're laughing because you know it's fucking true. I am forgiving. You're one of my favorite people in this whole town. You really are. When I, when I saw you at the um, Malibu Fest Carnival thing, I was begging you to take me back. You were? Yes. I, I wasn't dancing around it. I said, Barry, please. But I did reach out to you, and we did talk a little bit. It's whatevs, Barry. It's whatevs. <laughs> but I'm glad where you are right now, because Jimmy Miller is a wonderful man. He's and the best. Next to you. Molly Mandel is my point person. Great, too. Jimmy is an extraordinary guy. Sometimes he smiles. Yeah, he's a, he's a rough one. He's... um. He said, Andy, if you take a drink, you're out. I'm done. And I like that kind of toughness. But on the other hand, there's something I don't like about it. Because I'm a rebel at heart. And if I'm told not to do something, it's, it's like not laughing in church. I'm going to laugh in church. I'm going to have to leave because I'm, I'm not allowed to do something. It makes me crazy. What would you laugh at in church? Oh, I would just make shit up. My brother and I would make each other laugh. You know, it could be anything. Anything. What, if there's a place you're not allowed to laugh, I can't not laugh. When I was in Boy Scouts, I remember we went, or maybe it was Cub Scouts, and we went around singing carols in an old folks' home, room to room to the old folks. And they were just, these old people, a lot of them were so loony bins. I had never been in a, in a building where there were just tons of old people. Now, I, granted, I respect old people. I respect my elders. How old are you? That's why you're here. Are you older than me? I hope so. I know. It's hard <laughs> to find people older than me. We still have our hair. I know. It's, mine is thinning on top is yours. Maybe it is. I have no idea. I don't have that thing that you have, that line in your chin. My girlfriend hates it. Well, how could she hate it? Every person who has one is good looking. My girlfriend hates everything about me. She won't even let people know we're dating. Where'd you meet her? Uh, in rehab. Isn't that illegal? It's not that it's illegal. It's just frowned upon. They actually say, and it's not in the big book or anything, but they say don't even get into a relationship in your first year of sobriety. But, you know, fuck that shit. I, it helped me. It helped her. We, we've been together for two years, over two years. They always say a woman knows within five minutes of meeting a guy if she's going to be with them. Did she know? Oh, she must have known when she... I was already in this particular rehab. Soba. It's a great rehab. Saved my life, actually. And I, I stayed in Soba for two motherfucking years. I'm, I'm sitting there in the rehab. She comes rolling in, strolling in with her suitcase on a roller. 
And she's just standing there in the hallway, just looking around. And I saw her and I went, wow, what a vision. Sometimes, you know, a girl walks in the room and they're just like a vision, like lights shooting off them. And also I thought way out of my league. Like there's, that's a girl that just wouldn't ever be with me. And then, but also I was trying to, trying to go full on gay at the time. Women have crushed me really bad. But then she started flirting with me. And I said, well, you know, I, I don't know. I think I'm gay, so you're barking up the wrong tree, lady. I thought that until New Year's Eve, she gave me a little kiss, and my dick woke up. It's like, blink, blink, blink. Like, what? Oh, fuck. And it's been like two years. But honestly, I'm pretty shallow. She's just so hot. She's so hot. Do you think she thinks you're with her because... She's so hot? Or do you think she thinks you're with her yeah. because of her personality? Well, her personality, she's wild and weird. She's crazy, but I like it. And also, you have to be crazy to date me. You just ha would have to be. You shouldn't date me. Every, everybody, I'm talking to anyone out there, you shouldn't date me. And I'm not dateable, I'm like just not. But then I meet somebody like that, and the cool thing is she's not in, into acting, and I like the fact that she doesn't want people to know. She works in politics, that's kind of why. She, she might want to move up in politics, and if people found out she dated me, she'd be done. Her road to presidency would be over, cut short. You know what I mean? So she's smart, and she's so hot, and she's a bitch. She hates my butt, and she hates everything about me. But she fucking loves that dick. What is it about you from the waist down that makes you different from other guys? Mm. Length and girth. Seriously, I'm not joking. My big dick, yeah, from the waist down. It's just nice and real pretty. You want? I'll show it to you. Have you? You've probably seen it. I've been in rooms where I've seen it. Yes. Yeah. Obviously, throughout your life, even when you were younger, you would streak or expose yourself. So it was a pattern. Because you're not allowed to. Remember, this is the rebel thing. You don't. You don't take your clothes off. Oh yeah. Watch me take my clothes off. I've never felt the inclination to take my clothes off and run around in a public room. Maybe I don't like my body as much as you do. I don't like my body, but I like my dick. I think I have an odd-shaped body. I'm skinny. I don't have shoulders. It's like I wish I could wear clothes everywhere except my dick. The first time you did it, you were a young teenager or whatever. Yeah. You have to feel comfortable to be able to do that. Or are you saying that... It's not about comfortability. It's about facing your fears. That's what it was. And that's what me in, in acting is and was. It's any, there's a, a teacher of mine said, you, you need to follow your fears. And then somebody else taught me, if you have a fear, you don't wait for it to go away. You just kind of hold its hand and go in, in to whatever it is you're afraid of with the fear. Like, okay, fear, let's do this. One time when I was streaking as a preteen with my friends, it was so late at night, it was like, it must, it was turning into morning, five or 6 a.m. The sun was coming up. And we're butt fucking naked running through the neighborhood. We're, we're not holding our clothes. Our clothes are at the house. We streak out of the house, we're running around the neighborhood naked. And I see my dad walking the dog. <laughs> so we're just hiding in shrubs. <laughs> and I don't know how we made it back to the house. Now, your dad never saw you streaking? 
No, he saw something way worse. I was a, I was a teenager now in high school. I had my first kind of real. Maybe it was actually my second or third boyfriend. I always had boyfriends and girlfriends. By the way, do you know when I came out of the closet? I never knew you officially came out of the closet. I never came out because I never went in. Everybody in high school knew I had boyfriends and girlfriends. I didn't hide it. That's my point. So I'm with this guy. I used to be in love with this guy. He, he, He taught me how to masturbate. I didn't even know there was such a thing. I was coming. People were sucking my dick a lot. Everyone just wanted to suck my dick. In fact, to the point where I don't even like getting my dick sucked anymore, which is probably weird to you, but I... I don't like it. But here I am. I'm about 17, 18 years old in high school, or maybe maybe we just graduated, but me and my track star boyfriend, he and I, it was once again one of those 5 a.m., 6 a.m., way early in the morning. We had been drinking all night Jack Daniels. Now we are butt naked in our step-down living room. So it's a big open kitchen and living room. The kitchen's up here. You step down two steps into the living room. They're all just one big room. Um, and we're in the step-down living room, butt naked, but the sliding door is open. He's on his hands and knees with his head out the sliding door, vomiting because we had drank so much. I'm behind him, holding him with my dick pressed up against his butt. It looks like I'm fucking him. I wasn't, but it looks like it because I'm pressed up against him, holding his waist and laughing maniacally because it's just funny to me that he's projectile vomiting while I'm just humping on him. And I look up and my dad is standing right there in in the kitchen, just staring at us. We locked eyes. I sobered up and he just... Didn't he just? We locked eyes for a good five, ten seconds, and he just turned around and walked out, and he never brought it up. And you never brought it up? No, no way. Oh, Dad, remember when I was fucking that guy when he was throwing up in the living room? You want to talk about that? <laughs> I'm not gonna talk about it. And your mother never took you aside after that and said, "Dad told me something." No, but they did take me aside once. They said. Your father and I need to talk to you. They sat me at the kitchen table and said, yeah, we know that you like to get dressed up in women's clothing. I said, what the fuck? What? And they said, we found your mother's dresses laid out on the bed. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I know. I was doing characters. I really was. I was doing characters. I said, well, didn't you see my... Didn't you see dad's suits laid out, too? I was, like, dressing up with my friend. We were, like, role-playing and dressing up in their clothes, and we just didn't put them back in the closet. That's, that was a one-time thing. Well, no, it wasn't, because I, I, I have Daphne Aguilera. It's one of the characters I do. But I don't get off on it. It's not a sexual thing. But they were very worried about it. Like, it was so taboo and weird. Even if I was getting dressed up as a woman and jerking off or whatever you do, who cares? What was the first sexual experience you had? Was it with a man or a woman first? I had a girlfriend first in first grade named Marianne. And I remember I just liked the feeling of having a girlfriend. And, and we didn't do much except hold hands. And I laid on her lap when we would be on the bus. And it just felt really good. Um, the first time I felt sexual, though, 
was when there was a little skin on skin action. Like when I, when I touched somebody's skin, I didn't have a lot of affection for my parents growing up. And when I say it, not a lot of affection, I don't think I had any. I don't even remember being hugged. So I didn't, I was like kind of like, and I was adopted on top of it. So you're ripped away from your biological mother. You're thrown into this family that's not very affectionate, but they were great and I love them. I just posted a picture on my Instagram of my whole family. My brother, our dog, our cat, my mom, my dad, and they are all dead. I'm next and last in my immediate family. I'm just, I'm just hanging on, hanging by a thread. Your brother was adopted. How did he yeah. pass away? He died a few months ago. That's why I had that road bump, a little glitch in the sobriety machinery over the holidays. There was a glitch, a little, little meaning. The most minuscule uh, lapse that I've ever, ever had in my life, actually. But it was because I felt something. My brother and I were connected. He was adopted from another family, so we weren't related. But all we had was each other growing up because we moved around so much. So we, we would move to another city and we didn't know anybody, but we knew each other. I had that same feeling when a few months ago when something was going really wrong with me to the point I was on stage doing a song, one of my stupid, silly songs. And in the middle of it, I petered out and just put the mic down and walked off stage. I've never done that in my life. And then it hit me. I said, I have to just go see my brother because I knew he was sick in the hospital. The next morning, I booked a ticket and left that day and went to see my brother. And when I got into the room, I, he just was way worse than I had anticipated. And I said, "You're this isn't good, Jeff. We were laughing about it. I'm like, you're circling the drain. Did he know that he was dying? Yeah, but he always just didn't think he would. Invincible. Drank himself to death. So he's got a belly the size of a watermelon like uh, I guess his liver was just so swollen up. He had all these other issues going on and then the doctors confirmed, they said, yeah, he's not doing well at all to the point where we just kind of want to move him up to the next floor upstairs, which is the hospice floor where he's just gonna die. And it could be months and I said, well, let's do that now and I'll just fucking stay with him and I'll camp out because he's my brother. And then, but then once we moved up to the thing, they, that, that, that's when it really it started happening fast because they down in the in the hospital they were he was all hooked up to so many things drugs and machines and breathing things and then when they took those all away it just I asked them to bring a cot in for me and we we I laid on the cot next to him and we just talked and um, then he's then he wasn't able to talk anymore within a day he wasn't talking but he was responding and laughing a little uh, like that. He wanted, um, you know, it got to the point where I, I could only put ice chips there and wet, wet his um, whistle with, uh, it's like a sponge on a stick. And I thought, and I thought, God, he probably wants a fucking beer. So I went, I, I said, and I, I had been there, now I had been there for like three or four days and I hadn't eaten or drank anything. I was just so like kind of freaking out. And I asked the nurse, I said, can I, uh, is there a place to buy water around here? I didn't want to drink the Jacksonville, Florida tap water. You know, I'm just, I don't drink the LA tap water. So they said, yeah, there's a Walgreens, but you have to walk a little bit and you better hurry up before the sun goes down. I'm like, what do you, why? 
Like, do you know where we are? This neighborhood's very bad. And so I said, well, I better just go. So I, I, I went outside and the sun was going down and people were starting to come out and it was getting a little scary. And I had this feeling, oh my God, I, I know nobody here. I'm here and if something happens, I, I just don't know anybody. And then the, the immediate second thought after that was, yeah, I do, I do have somebody. I have my brother. And I had that same feeling that I had back when we were kids. That we, that we, all we had was each other. And no one really should die, have to die alone. And he didn't. I got water. I got one beer. And I used that sponge to dab his lips with the beer. And then, you know, he, he just, he died. He died the next day. But he died when I was on the phone with the woman that controls uh, my dad's Money. My dad left not a lot. My dad left a couple hundred grand. That's a good amount, but he didn't leave it to me or my brother. He was smart, my dad. It would have been gone by now. We would have drank it. He left it to any of our kids, should we have kids. So he did have this kid, but later on when she became a teenager, she started saying, no, it's not really yours, Jeff. The mother did. I said, get the fucking DNA test because you've been paying for this. I've been paying for this kid the whole time because I supported him his whole life. That was probably not a good idea. Do you know what I mean? Because then it afforded him to just sit on the boat, his houseboat that I bought him, and drink. Um, So basically I killed my brother. You don't believe that, do you? No, I don't. But I wish I was more tough with him, I guess. But... He was just a year younger than me. So I'm on the phone with that woman who controls the money saying, saying, okay, but so the money is going to be split with my kids and that one. So did he find out if that, if that is, is really his daughter? Did he ever find out and get the, the blood test? She's like, no, he never told me. What the? No, fuck this. This is fucking, I started yelling, like, because the money's going to be split to, to a girl who might not even be his. And, I, and as I'm getting upset like this, my brother just died. <laughs> he, was, uh, he was just over it. He just, like, I, he just didn't like seeing me get upset. And, and he knew it was his fault. He never got the DNA. He's like, you know what? I'm out. I'm out. So you hear the thing actually going. Beep. No, no, no. I was right there next to him. And I, was, I couldn't get my eyes off him the whole time I was there for days. I just was watching him. And he just stopped breathing. And his eyes went like dead. You can tell when somebody dies. And I, I did have to say to the woman on the phone, hang on a minute, I think my brother just died. And I had to just hang up and get the nurse, and he did. He died right there. But like I said, nobody should have to die alone. Well, he didn't because of you. I was right there. Tell me how your brother was different from you and how he was similar to you. We were polar opposites. He was a dark-skinned, very handsome uh, Native American, part Native American, very athletic, great body. I always looked up to him. I liked him. I think he's funnier than me. He just was very, very shy. You know, people where they're funny, but they're like, no, no, but it was, it's, I'm, not, I'm not as funny as my mother. 
my mother was the fucking funny one. Things like that. Like, my mom actually was really funny. And so was my dad. Everyone was so funny. I just kind of took a little bit from all of them and did my own thing, right? But he liked to drink. So did I. We drank together. So that was a similarity. Other than that, we were polar opposites, but we got along. We would just make each other laugh. There's a, the picture that I told you where we're all, it's a Sears family portrait on my Instagram where it's my dog, my cat, my mom, my dad, my brother, we're all there. I'm making this face like this because I'm laughing so hard at something my brother said. I can't remember what he said, but I'm laughing in the picture and that's the fucking one they use. Do you think men are just as much of an addiction as the alcohol or no? Men and women. Look, my girl, I'm, a lot of things happened over the holidays in one week where my brother died, my girlfriend moved away. All those celebrities died. Um, that was building up in me because they're all around my age, our age. They, like, they're, everyone's dying. So um, her going away, I, yes, the answer is yes, it is. I might have more of an addiction to sex. In fact, Every time I've gone into a rehab, if once I take the alcohol away, there's still a problem. And the problem is always some relationship I'm in right then and there. So it, the alcohol is a, what, symptom of a bigger problem, which is this relationship and intimacy problem. Most people want it to be reciprocated. Like, if I'm pursuing you... It would be nice if you liked me back. I don't care. I don't care if you like me. I like you. Let's get something going. If you if you like it enough, we can keep going. If you hate it, just go away. Really, I, I don't, like I don't, I remember one of the guys said, don't you want somebody to like you back as much as like how you like me? I went, no, I don't really care. Why don't you care? I don't know. I just go right back to that. Because it was because I was adopted. That's where you go each time. Uh, because it has to be. Your brother was adopted. Yeah, he never did anything with, with uh, a guy. In fact, one time, one of my friends tried to get with him, and I punched him in the dick. I was very protective of my brother's straightness. Isn't that weird? And I'm also weirdly happy that none of my kids are gay. It's all—it's been a little bit of a curse. I'm not—I'm not wearing this bi thing uh, like a badge, an honor, or whatever. However you want to say it, I, I don't like it. I wish I was more normal. I wish I could drink normally. I've tried every time I go back to drinking. I don't go back going. Oh, I—I I can't. I can't wait to get fucked up and end up in another rehab. I can't wait to go right to blackout. I can't wait to fuck my whole life up. Hand me a bottle because I'm ready to fuck my life up. Every time I've ever gone back, it's it's to try to see if I can maintain it. You know what? I think I'm ready. It's been two years. I think I can do it right this time. I think I can do it like that guy Or, or my kids are not alcoholics or my ex or my friends who just have a glass of wine with dinner that I'm like I, I think I can do that now guys and I mean it I really think I can I'm going to do it again I'm going to attempt it again 
Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. There isn't a time when you're on a frame of film or TV where you don't blow me away. And when you had the Facebook Live when you were positioning it, it reminded me of something that I'll never forget when I was representing you on your MTV show. You directed all the episodes, and you did something that I never saw anyone do before. You positioned the monitor right in back of the camera that was on you. So you were looking in the eye of yourself of what you were doing. Yeah. And it was unbelievable the level of concentration you had because you were doing a scene and you were looking in a mirror. Yeah. If the world didn't know about anyone's personal life, all they judged people on was their talent. To me, you would be in the Hall of Fame as one of the funniest, most respected, unbelievable performers that I've ever seen in my entire life. And I think of all the struggles you've been through, and if you didn't have those struggles, I can't even imagine what kind of performance you could do that's better than what you do when you're on screen. Yeah. I know the things that you've done in your life have derailed parts of your career. I understand that. But I can't visualize you doing a performance any better than you do it when I see you. Mm -hmm. So why is it that the things that you go through when you get on camera don't affect the performances? You take somebody like Farley. You know, a very good friend, you know, a very good friend. We hung out all the time. When I think of Farley, I think of you, not yeah. the bad, but I think of the guy who's yeah. suffering, who can't gain control of the side of his personal life, yet every time he went on camera, just insanely funny with no problems. Is that something that an addict has a better chance of being better on camera because they know the depths that are much greater than anybody else? Maybe. I think you're hitting on it. I think you, you're, the answer is, is in there. I'm trying to think of it, too, the answer, with you because I know when you put it, when you mention him, I can look at him and I can see what it is. And then I go, oh, yeah, that is what it is like for me. And that is where, you know, life kind of sucks. 
life sucks. I feel like I got dealt. If I if I look, if I map it out and I write it out, it looks like a shitty hand. But I made the most of it. I made the most of it, made the most of it, made the most of it. Drinking, when I started drinking at 14, that helped. When I, you know, but the one thing that I've kept kind of sacred, and not all the time, I've messed it up, is the relationship between me and any kind of like audience. Like I wanted to make sure I was in a really good place, mind, body, and spirit, just to do your show, industry standard with Barry Katz, because it's important to me. It's taken a long time for me to get you here. Right, that's my point. I wasn't ready. There were times I'm like, eh, I just can't do it. So that's why I ha my career is very, very long, 30 years, but they're like, I turned down Mugatu in Zoolander, Will Ferrell's part. I turned down big parts because I wasn't quite, I wasn't there. I couldn't. So I, I, when you see me and the light turns on, the red light's on, and I'm doing great, it's because I know I'm going to do great. If there's a role offered and I think, I, don't, I can't really, I can't do anything with that, I'll say no to it if I don't think I'm going to shine in it. So I kind of pick and choose my things, and, and only if, if it's going to serve both of us, me and the audience. Do you feel like Will Ferrell is an example of what you would look like Without alcohol yes, and drugs. For sure. Yeah. He didn't even know how to do the fucking character. You know, Ben Stiller popped in a video cassette because I had been doing the character on the VH1 Fashion Awards. And I did the table read with Drake Sather, who blew his head off, remember? He wrote it, but, but you know, it was, it was for me. And we had been writing my shorts together, he and I. And Drake Sather, for those of you who don't know, was an incredible stand-up comedian from the Northwest. He did Letterman when he was a feature act. Incredible. He became a great writer. He wrote on news radio. But a tortured yeah. soul, and he took his own life. Took his own life while he was on the phone with his wife, Marnie, who's wonderful. And he had five kids. It was so tragic. I saw Marnie after that, and I fell on the floor crying. I can't deal all these people just fucking dying. But the thing is, is that when we're on the stage, which I'm going on the stage tonight, Laugh Factory, or when we are in front of a camera, I'm talking about we, me and the Chris Farley's and the other, as you say, tortured souls of the world. Things are great. And it, it comes from a, a little bit of a desperation. There is a desperation like, it, see? You guys like me. It's like that Sally Fields thing, you know, like I can feel it and, and I'm providing a service. All this misery and bullshit, it, it wasn't all for naught. There's something like I, I've, and you do too. We all have our finger on the pulse of what it's like to be a human being, like the misery of it, you know? And I think that's just where all the, the great characters come from what is that there's a new show called OA that's it with Britt Marlin she wrote it directed it she must have something going on with her but there's one character in it that's a bully that that gets jealous of this guy who starts to date his ex and the guy's in choir so he's in the chorus choir of high school and and the bully walks right up to him and just punches him in the throat in the throat so he can't sing anymore I'm like and he's one of the good guys in this series so uh, I I hate that because I he's not there's nothing good about him at all to me 
But that's the thing. Everybody has a good side. Do you know what I mean? I do. I think of you when you're performing, you never feel like having a drink. You're happy. Oh, but that's not true. I do. I have drank and gone on stage. I'm saying when you're on stage. There's nothing that makes me higher. You're right. I am higher than anything. I'm buzzing. I was vibrating the other night after I got off the, the comedy store stage. I was vibrating. I was like this. I feel like I'm high. I didn't want to leave. I wanted to go right back on. How long before the high goes away? Seconds. I mean, it just goes away. <laughs> do you get depressed right after? I do. I have post-show blues all the time. That's why I have to keep doing it. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. When you're with a guy or a girl intimately, after it's all over. Right away. That's why I, what I liked about my girlfriend. She was, it, we went out for two years and it was just, she was just always there. She's my girlfriend. It's not like this like hookup. And then I got to look for the next one or wait for that person to decide, oh, that was kind of fun. Let me go back. It's been three weeks, but I just, I I would like a nice, I like having a girlfriend. What else gives you a high besides those things? That's, there's nothing, no bigger high than like, like doing Letterman. That was so great. The first time I did Letterman. It's amazing. Will you tell our audience about it? Letterman called up and said he wanted me to do characters like Chris Elliott did, the guy under the stairs. And then the first guy was that he wanted me to play was Donnie, the CBS page who likes to suck up. And I was just the CBS page who seats people in their seats or whatever. But I'm just a big brown nosing kiss ass, just sucking up to David Letterman. And I was so, that is arriving as a comic. If you're on Letterman, there's nothing beyond that. There's just nothing better than that. Nothing. Nothing. Especially Letterman. Somebody like me, a more alternative comic. Letterman was just it. I couldn't even believe it. So here I am behind the big double doors listening for my cue. My cue's coming up. I hear my cue. And I honestly, I thought I was going to shit my pants and I was going to be walking out with diarrhea dripping down my leg and and I was going to just ruin everything and right when I heard my cue and I was shaking somebody tapped me you're not going out it's not happening today I went oh fucking thank god I wouldn't have been able to pull it off I don't think I would have been able to I went on the next night but I had a whole 24 hours to like process what wow I I was. I went right up to. I heard my cue. I was pushing on the double doors, and they went, "Nope, no." We just. They got, we just. Hello. Yeah. We just, <laughs> you're not going on. Isn't that that? It was from God because it was like going through all the motions of what I was going to do, and but not having to do it, but also not dying. I thought I was going to die. Was that the first time you ever had anxiety before a performance? Oh fuck no. When I, one of the other big ones was auditioning for Second City out here in L.A. But you already had been accepted in Chicago. I didn't, I was never in it. No, they, like when I was, I was a high school student and they, they offered me all the classes for free. They say, we need you. We're going to train you. You can have all five levels free. Here you go. I went through all five levels, did them. They said, great. Now we, need, we want you to go into the touring company. I said, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to move to L.A. I, I'm going to skip it. 
I'm going to skip the second city thing. And I, I kind of, I skipped a lot of steps because people told me, you're so great. There was a, an agent out in Chicago named Harris Davidson who said, Andy, you know, I discourage all of my clients from going to LA. I tell them, don't even bother and you're going to get lost. It's just not going to happen. But with you, I'm encouraging you to go to LA. That's kind of the last thing I heard in Chicago. I like had my bags packed and I just was leaving. And I didn't wait to go into Second City. Came out to LA and then they decided to open up a Second City a year later in LA. I'm like, oh my God. Well, I might as well try to get it in it now. They already had their main cast. It was Ryan Stiles, Robin Duke, Andrea Martin. They like got all their big wigs and created this amazing cast with uh, Colin, Ryan Stiles' friend, uh, Chris Barnes. And then they, they, uh, they had people audition for the touring company. Molly Shannon auditioned for the touring company. Didn't get in. I remember asking her out on a date, and she laughed at me like I was joking, but I was not joking. I'm like, no, I'm really, I'm serious. <laughs> then I just thought she was a lesbian, which jury's out with that. She could be. Who knows? I love her. She's hysterical. Anyhow, she didn't need the touring company. So I got into the touring company. The, the audition for the touring company was we, got, we had to go on stage and do a little show in front of a live audience. What did you choose to do? Well, we improvised. So we had to improvise. But you know as well as I do. When you improvise, there's a Rolodex in the back of your head of things you can pull out. My big thing is my like thing that I'm good at is really being in the moment. So I listen to people and react. You never pull anything that's in the back of your mind from something seven years ago. No, I don't have, I don't have like that... Joan, I wish I did, by the way, because I, I find myself always kind of saying little funny things, and I'm, I tell whoever I'm with, please write that down, but I don't remember. Like, Joan Rivers, did you see that amazing documentary on Joan? I've seen it like five times. It was so fucking good. She, all these years, from the 50s till now, she was in Second City, by the way, she does have a Rolodex. You want to do a, a joke about thinning hair? Look, I've got 150 of them. <laughs> like, she's fucking amazing. I, I never had that. But you were asking me if I'd ever been nervous like that Letterman thing. That was a moment where, where I was. Going on stage in front of a lot of live people, I really wanted it badly to be in the second city because they paid. I'd get into equity. This sounds great. I'm here in L.A. The L.A. thing wasn't working out that great like Harris Davidson thought it would for me. I wasn't like getting cast all over the place. I did get a small part in Anything But Love with Richard Lewis and Jamie Lee Curtis. And I got that Dennis Hopper movie. I was doing well. Only uh, the only thing that goes wrong is me, me and and the alcohol. So and speaking of, I drank five margaritas. Five. You drank them before the audition. It was a show. It was a show in front of a live audience, and I drank them, and I was so loose that I was just super funny, and I got hired. We got sixty dollars a week, and we toured around like. Berkeley and you know all, University of San Diego you know all the colleges around California and I understudied Chris Barnes so I had to sit there every night I wanted to anyways I want I was living improv I was living Second City I loved it I just lived it and I watched the show every night because I loved it 
but also because I needed to watch Chris Barnes because I was his understudy. I had to know his lines, and he had a cocaine problem at the time. So he was out, quote-unquote, sick quite often. And I, they would go, Andy, you're on tonight. What? And, and he would change his lines weekly. The, the, the scenes in Second City would evolve and get better and better and better. They'd throw some lines out, do new bits and all this. I had to watch this show to know what <laughs> what's going on. One time, and this was during, this was during one of the fucking big, the, one of the shows where I was understudy with, with um, Richard Kind. I had a scene, oh yeah, I, I was doing Richard Kind's scene about Ali McGraw. And I don't even know who that is. I guess she's in... The uh, Getaway and Love Story. Love Story, yeah. Never saw it. So Louis Arquette. You know, Louis Arquette has all the Arquettes. Patricia, David Arquette, Alexis Arquette. I was closest with Alexis Arquette, who just died. She was a, a transgender. She got the operation, but she died this year. Everybody's just died. That's what's kind of freaking me out, dude. Anyhow, Louis Arquette was living in his van because he was having marital troubles and he was just crashing in his van. And he got me so high before one of our performances. We did a live show of the touring company on the main stage once a week, every Monday. And that's what it was. I was doing Richard Kind's scene from a Chicago scene because that's what we would do. The, the touring company did old scenes. We didn't improvise. We, did, we, got, we were doing John Belushi scenes. So in a way, Second City and being in the touring company really honed my comedic skills because I was doing scenes that were classic scenes. So you learned beats, you learned how to write. You know what I mean? So, but I got on stage, I was so fucking high from being in Louis Arquette's Cheech and Chong fucking band, smoking out with him, that I blanked out in the middle of that scene about Ali McGraw, and I was just standing there, blanking out, and the lights just went off in the middle. <laughs> it was just over. Hey, everybody. I am really, really excited. We have a new sponsor, AquaTrue. This is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water. And if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over 100 chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer-causing and have lead in them. So... You can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site. And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. I want to go way, way back, if you don't mind. So I want to know where you grew up, 
what the dynamic was financially, your parents, what they were like, what they did for a living, and the first time you found out you were adopted and how it affected you. Always knew I was adopted from day one. I was adopted from the hospital. They had filled out the paperwork while I was still in the womb. And there was a book laying around the house called The Chosen Child, which was a children's book describing what adoption was. Like, look, you were chosen. You're special because we actually picked you from thousands of babies. We said, we want that one. So you're a wanted, loved thing. But that didn't trick this one here. I knew there's like the opposite. Like if there's a couple that wants me, what about the couple that there's that didn't want me? What what like it, I, I get it. It's a cute little book you guys wrote, but who? What about the ones that, that kicked me to the curb? Where are they and why? And that, that just haunted me my whole life till I found them. How old were you when you made the search to find them? Well, I asked my mom when I was a teenager. I said, "Do you know anything about the you know my?" biological mother and my biological father yeah we know that your your mom was 16 and it wasn't right to be pregnant back in 1965 so you were conceived in lubbock texas but they shipped you off they shipped her off to when i was inside of her to charleston south carolina she had me there put me up for adoption there and then she moved back to lubbock and your dad was a bricklayer and an amateur boxer. How old was he? I guess he was in his early 20s. And he was um, a Golden Gloves boxer in five states. And I said, I, I, I'd like to like, go, I'd like, can I go look for them? Or how can I go find them? And my mom just started crying. She just started, she's like, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 never mind, never mind. I don't care. It just, it was, it's like a curiosity. You're my mom, and that's my dad. So don't, you know what? Forget I even asked. I uh, just, just forget it. And I, and I didn't ask, or, you know, I would probably think about it, but I didn't do anything about it until they died. My mom, my dad died when I was about 27. My mom died a few years later, both of cancer. Then, I was left with a hole. Were you there? I was there for both of them. I always talk about this Larry Moss, the great acting coach, says in order to be a great artist, you have to have a hole blown through you. Your art fills the hole. That's true. And then later in your life, you've got to figure out how to fill the hole without the art. There was a book I read called The Primal Wound about being adopted, and it said that. It said you have a hole, that you have a hole in your soul. And, and in the book, they said you'll never fill it. You're, you're not going to get better. There's nothing you can do. And so I'm thinking, well, why the fuck am I reading this book? <laughs> I put it down. I didn't even read one sentence further. In the, in the preface of the book, this woman described her therapist said, write a letter to your biological mother, but write it with your left hand because it accesses a different part of your brain. The more like, human or emotional or animal or whatever, whatever side it, it accesses a more primal side that's more real. So she, you know, because if, if, you, if you don't write with your left hand. And so she started writing the letter to her mom and she just wrote, Dear Mommy, 
please come and get me. So, so I mean, that hit me. It doesn't hit you, you're not adopted. But I just started crying. I could not get through that book. So you always want to meet your biological mom. What do you do to make it happen? What are the steps that you took? My lawyer somehow got in touch with, it was a, it was a closed, sealed adoption, okay? So somehow he found the lawyer that handled my adoption in 1965. Now he was a retired judge out in South Carolina. They somehow fucking found him. The assistant said, because I was on TV, I was on news radio. They're like, oh, this could be fun. The assistant thought it would be fun to, they said, yeah, well, the papers are sealed up somewhere in my garage. And he went into the garage. There's thousands of documents. And this guy went through all the fucking documents, found mine, found who my mom was, who my dad was, and I reached out to them. Reached out to my mom first, met up with her. We saw, I, I flew her out here. We saw whales. First and only time I've seen whales was with my mother. I thought I was gonna fill a hole. I thought I was gonna be, everything's gonna be great now. I'm, I'm not gonna have a drinking problem. I'm gonna be happy again and forever. Everything's gonna be great, I'm gonna have a new mother. No. She wasn't my mom. I loved my mom, and I loved my dad. This was just a woman. I'm like 30-something now, or, or however old I was, and it's just some woman. But we had a great, some great moments where we're crying, and she told me stories like, I never, this, this helped. She said, I never wanted to give you up. You were getting to be famous. Did she have any idea that the guy she was watching was you? No, she didn't. So I had this, like, Oh, now you want to be in my life. I, had, I, I still have that. It's not even real because she probably just, she really does. She, I guess I was born and the nurses held her eyes and ran me out of the room because if, I guess if you lock eye, if you, the, the mother sees the child, they will change their mind and be like, no, I'm going to keep the baby. You know, it can be like that dramatic. So they, to this day, she told me that if anybody covers her eyes, she goes ballistic because of that moment. And she said there's not a day that went by that she didn't think of me and all. So those things kind of helped, I guess, but doesn't, but really. They grew up super poor. She uh, would have been, uh, she was single. The guy, she, and I said, okay. And then after getting to know her for a couple months, I said, can I, what about, can I, do you know the dad, the biological, do you know him? Yeah, I know who he is. Well, I'd like to, let's meet up with him. Let's find him. Can you, do you have his number? Do you know his name? Do you, can you do that? Because all we had was her. We didn't have the guy. That's right. The lawyer didn't have that. And she said, no, no, I'm not going to give you his number. He's not a good person. Right? Well, then I got mad at her. Like, what? You're the one that fucked him. I mean, I didn't say this, but like, <laughs> can I be the judge of that? I want, and I just stopped talking to her. I'm like, I want to fucking meet him. I don't care if he's a good guy or in your eyes. Let me be the judge. So we didn't talk for a long time until finally she sent me a letter. And then in, in very dramatically in a folded up piece of paper, I had to open it up. There, it was his name and number. I'm like, oh, okay. So I called him up. Hi, my name is Andy Dick. I think I might be your son. I don't have a son. Click. What? Called back. 
no, 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 because I was adopted. I said I don't have to click. Like, ooh, maybe my biological one was right. He's not a good guy. Because I guess it was a, I might have been the product of a rape. It might have been. I don't know the exact details. Anyhow, I said my name a few times, and I guess he did some research, found out who I was. Then I got a call. Yeah, this is Ron and Morgan. I think, yeah, yeah, now, so you, you're saying you're my son. Like, yeah, I mean, that's what Lynn Tomlinson said, that you're the guy that impregnated her. Yeah, but see, I no, now, there, she could have been impregnated by anyone. No, because she said you were the only one that she had ever slept with. She was a virgin. Okay, so then you're my son. Well, that's what, I mean, that's what everyone's saying. All right, all right. Well, I understand you're on TV. And then I went right into, okay, now you... And I hated him immediately. But I flew him out, was hanging out with him in this really great place I was living in. He, I, I remember him right within minutes, he's looking around and sizing up the place, going, so how much is a place like this worth? I'm like, just, you know, I just get back on the plane and get the <laughs> fuck out of here. I'm so over you. And it's just been... It didn't fill a hole. It created another one. <laughs> it's horrible. It's the worst. Did they look like you? Yeah. Sadly. <laughs> they do. He also doesn't have shoulders. Which one of them had the cleft chin? Oh, I don't think either of them. But the grandfather did. The grand- I think I look more, almost more like him. So you're growing up as a teenager. What's the inspiration for getting into show business. What moves you that you're watching? I wasn't watching TV, wasn't watching a lot of movies. I would see the occasional Don Knotts movie, believe it or not. I would see, I saw the Apple Dumpling Gang. I would love the Disney movies, you know, the, the Shaggy DA, the strongest man in the world. I would see, go see those. And my mom accidentally, mis- she, she mistakenly, I guess you would say, took me to Jaws when I was nine or 10, that's, that's child abuse. I was a 10 year old, I thought I was a big strong man, but in the parking lot on the way to the car, I said, mom, will you please hold my hand? I was so scared, like shark was gonna jump out between the cars. She didn't know how fucking scary it was gonna be. She was a little bit out of it. She was an alcoholic. She might've been drunk, who knows. Your dad an alcoholic? No, but he did drink beer. Your biological mom and biological dad alcoholics? My dad is, he'll, yeah, he'll he'll call. I could read you some of his time. We're still in contact, but now he's like I toy with him. He's just like a character in my life that I fuck with. Do you believe that the genes carry on in addiction? Yeah, I do. How come your kids have been relatively okay? Love. They got so much love from me and their mothers. I didn't. That was one of the things. So you didn't get love as a child, but you gave love. You turned the tables. Yeah. I also did a lot of work on myself. You know that. I did every discipline known to man. I still do transcendental meditation, except when I'm drinking. Because candy is dandy, but liquor is quicker. <laughs> really, <laughs> liquor is like you're meditating all the fucking time. Wait, no, but, I, but you were saying something about... The inspiration. Oh, that's what I was going to say, is that, no, I didn't watch... A lot of TV. I didn't watch any TV. I would watch my mom and dad. Here's the one thing that I realized over the years. I watched my dad watch TV. So I'm not watching the show, but I'm watching my dad. 
And my dad would laugh and slap his knee. <laughs> I do that now. When I laugh, I hit my knee. What was he watching? MASH. All in the family. The Jeffersons. But I loved that he was, he was laughing. It wasn't like him to laugh. So I saw the power of TV, but I wasn't watching TV. So, and I saw the power of laughter. I know this is where it happened. And when I was six years old, the girls in the neighborhood put me and my brother, but mostly me, because my brother, like I told you earlier, was so shy. I kind of was liking it. They, were, they would do these, these shows for the neighborhood parents, for the parents. And they would write these scenes. So basically I was in some kind of preschool second city in Connecticut doing these shows where every, all the parents would sit on lawn chairs in the front yard and we'd put on these shows starring me as a six-year-old. And I loved it. Because the parents would laugh like my dad laughed at the Jeffersons, you know? And I'm like, oh. And I remember my dad, I, would, I told my dad, I think I'm gonna be an actor. He went, okay, okay. Um, just make sure when you go to college you get a really good degree. Probably not in acting, something that, we're, that you can fall back on when the acting thing doesn't work out. When the acting thing doesn't work out. I'm like, oh wow, he really, really believes in me. Then as he's dying on the hospital bed, I had gotten a couple jobs. He was dying. He opened up to me towards the end of his life. He opened up to me and he said a phrase to me that tripped me out. Because he had never said I love you, ever. And I don't, I'm not mad about that. That's just how it was growing up. He never said, never hugged me, never said I love you. But he, he did uh, est back in the 70s. For those of you who don't know, EST is Earhart Seminar Training. It's something like Landmark. It is Landmark. Landmark was EST. And then all of a sudden, he really came home, this whole different person. I didn't recognize him. I'm like, who is this guy? And he had me in the car, and the doors were locked. And he said, he, he said I want you to know something. I want you to know that I love you. It was so uncomfortable for me. But then he said, but I also want you to know that I know that you love me. I'm like, oh, what are who is this person? He cracked open and became this affectionate, loving guy and died six months later. Right when we started having a relationship, he died. And, on, and, and in the hospital room on his deathbed, he had my head shot up and he was telling, this is my son, the actor. He didn't sound like that, I don't. don't Your mom tell you she loved you? I mean, when they were dying, yeah. It just wasn't a thing we did. It wasn't a sad thing. I wasn't like crying in my room. I wish they would tell me they loved me. It was just how it was. I knew they loved me. They were great. We just didn't, they didn't hug me or pet me. How many times a day do you tell your children that you love them? All day. And they tell you too? Yeah, but that just shows you. It doesn't, actions are loud, speak louder than words, you know, they really do. Like, sometimes, like, just when I was leaving to go here, I'm like, bye, I love you, see you l later. And sometimes it just becomes, like, a phrase. It becomes, like, like bye, see you later, bye. You know? <laughs> so it was almost like when they said that I love you, finally, when I was, like, 27, it actually meant something. But you know what I mean? When he finally said it, it was, it was, it blew me over.
So, so my point is, don't tell your kids you love them till you know till they hit like 20, 21. Then hit them with it. Then it means something. So tell me the first thing that happened in your entertainment life where you said to yourself, I'm never doing anything else again. High school. We moved to Joliet, Illinois, and I was always bored. I'm bored. I'm bored. That was the cry of the Andy Dickey bird. Why'd you move around so much? My dad was in the Navy. Then he worked on, he was a nuclear engineer, and he was a lieutenant commander on submarines, but then he, he quit that. Well, he retired from the Navy, didn't quit, retired from the Navy, then worked at Westinghouse as a nuclear engineer, training people how to work these nuclear power plants. And whenever they'd build a new one, we'd go and fly there. We lived in Yugoslavia for a whole year when they built their first, probably their only nuclear power plant. He taught them how to use it. And then now we moved to, he was working at the Braidwood nuclear power plant, and we lived an hour away in Joliet. And, you know, me, I'm always, I was always bored. I'm bored. Oh, well, your high school, your new high school. They would always move in the middle of the year because they heard in, through books or psychiatrists that moving in the middle of the year is best for the children because they're immediately thrown into school as opposed to moving during the summer and they're just alone sitting at home, you know, there's no one around. Here you get thrown into the school and there's just kids everywhere and you make friends immediately. And they said, your school, your high school, they're doing a show. They're doing Hello, Dolly. It's a musical. I had never seen a musical, never seen a play. And no, I had seen one play once in, in, uh, at Gateway in Monroeville, the school I went to right before Joliet, Gateway High School in, outside of Pittsburgh. So my mom took me, 8 o'clock. I'm sitting in the audience. This is trippy because the play I saw in Pittsburgh, it was a theater in the round. There was no curtains and it was very experimental and weird. And the only thing I remember is that somebody had a glass eye. One of the characters, it was fake, but that had popped out and was rolling across. That's all I remember from that play. But here the curtains go, the lights go down and the curtains open up. And you know how high schools have these, they have very nice theaters. They're like, Broadway theaters or off-Broadway theaters. They're very nice auditorium theaters that can seat a thousand people. So the curtains open up. The costumes were so vibrant and colorful and the lights are so crazy and they're singing and dancing. And I was so overwhelmed because this is like, you know, my plays were when I was six, people were in lawn chairs in, in the daytime and there was no real costume. It was like, this was like, took it to another level. I, I was, I was, I, I couldn't breathe, and I, I, I had to stand up within minutes, and just leave the theater and wander the empty halls. I remember this, wandering the empty halls, knowing that this was my destiny. I said, I want to be, I want to be up there. I just want to do it. Tell our audience what you perceived to be your first break in show business. Once again, in high school, I was auditioning for every fucking play, and I would always get some weird little thing. The the teachers would always take me aside and and encourage me. They were very good at what they did. They would say, you kind of can't sing, Andy, so we can't put you in the lead, but there's this one non-singing part that's comic relief. We we want you to do that. I would be like, wow. 
they want me. There is a place for me. And when I, when I saw the Second City ETC show, that's the first time I said, you know, there is really a place for me in this. Like, cause my, cause I'm, I'm offbeat and weird. And the Second City is one thing, but the Second City ETC out back, the littler show was even weirder and, and, um, obscene and alternative. And, um, uh, so I was, I put myself out there and I put myself out there in a big way. I got headshots. I got, I got Harris Davidson, the agent, and I was putting myself out there. Oh, the, the first time I knew that, that I, that I, that I might actually make it was when I was in Oliver and I had one of those non-speaking funny parts and we had Anthony Rapp playing Oliver. Anthony Rapp's one of the original cast members of Rent. And he's Oliver. We befriended each other. We were like making scenes and doing videos outside of school a lot. And he had played Oliver on Broadway. And now he's in our school. And I'm like, I'm like one ass hair away from Broadway. I wasn't at all. But, and I never have been on Broadway. But, and I, but I'd like to be. But he was in our play as Oliver, which was a big to-do because they're like, you can't have, he, he was, he was, we got to have a nut, somebody who, who's inexperienced. This isn't fair. But I'm like, what do you mean? Don't you want to do a good show? This, the, he's the best. He was Oliver. Come on. What's fucking wrong with you? So I did my little stupid part and his mother. So his mother who recognized her own son's talent, may she rest in peace, by the way, Mary Rapp. She came up to me and said, Andy, you know, that part that you do, I've seen people do that on Broadway and you're 17 and you do it way better than anyone I've ever seen. You've got to pursue this as a career. I I've taken that her saying that to me because she was a, an expert. She knew what she was talking about. And I've ridden that wave all the way to now. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, and everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, I'm going to choose one person randomly, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, I will Skype them in and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary. I guarantee you it will blow you away. Six degrees of separation, I'm going to mention a name of somebody. Tell me whatever comes to mind. It could be a word, a sentence, a story. Judd Apatow. One of the biggest believers 
in, in me. He said something to me once when I was kind of apologizing for being such a fuck up with the drugs and alcohol. And he said, Andy, I love you either way. And that doesn't happen. You know, most of my friends are like, I only love you when you're sober. A lot of people say that. I will only love you sober. So Judd Apatow, to this day, you know, he's the one that gave me a part in love on Netflix. I know you just interviewed the Netflix guy. I love Netflix. Thank God for Netflix. Just so much good stuff to watch. That Lemony Snicket's show is so fucking good. Who is that? Barry Sonnenfeld, executive producer and director. It's so good. Um, but I, I could go on and on and on about Judd because he gave me my first job, the Ben Stiller show. And you asked me that question, when did I think I made it? It was then. I, I had been in L.A. for like three to five years, and I was just starting to think what I'm going to do. I was thinking about my dad. What am I going to fall back on? Maybe I could be a teacher because that's kind of like acting. You know, I'm in front of a kind of an audience. The bear, they're, they have to listen. I could do that. I was starting to think, maybe I'll move back to Chicago. When Ben Stiller said, hey, I'm doing this show on Fox. It's a variety show. I want you with it. You, Bob Odenkirk, and, and Janine Garofalo. You three and me. Let's do it. I'm like, yeah, great. Call me when, call me when you're rolling. <laughs> like, I didn't even believe him. I was so jaded by that. And then it really happened. And Judd was the head writer. He was the producer. I just love that guy. He's heart of gold and a comedy mogul. Howard Stern. Next. <laughs> I can't say anything right. No matter what I say about Howard, I get in trouble. Are you stirring the pot here? No, I want you to tell me what you think of him as an artist. He's I. Never a big fan. Never. What's the funny part? I don't, I just I never got it. Just a guy talking. He's got a real deep voice. He sounds great. He's silky smooth. You know, but he's got that microphone. It's like a $100,000 microphone. If I was talking to that, I'd sound fucking smooth as silk. See his mic and the other... He, he's got this fucking thing, and it makes him sound really good. And then his guests have this tiny little... Hello! Like he's interviewing Minnie Mouse. Some of my favorite moments of you yeah. are your interviews that you did with Howard. They were some of the most amazingly funny. I've never listened to radio like that before. Because he, 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 he's good at that he's good at letting people be themselves and he does gravitate towards freaks and you could argue that i'm a freak and you know he's got those midgets and the uh, just excuse my language i don't know uh, the right pc word little people retard uh, or, or and retarded and retarded midgets special needs you know i think they even uh, he had a retarded midget I know both those words are a not. A special right. needs little person. Yeah, a special needs <laughs> little person. God. That's probably right. How you were on that show was groundbreaking. Incredible. Yeah. He was smart. Thanks. He was smart to let people. Want. He didn't. Look at his movie, Private Parts. He's the king of all media because he, he's a radio disc jockey. Number one. His book, Private Parts, was number one, New York Times bestseller. And then his movie, Private Parts, was number one. That's why he's called the king of all media. And he, if you watch his movie, which is great with Paul Giamatti as the station manager yelling, you can't say that! He didn't care. 
you know, he does transcendental meditation. He's, he got to a place where he just doesn't care. And he's like, this is what people want. They want it to be real. They want real, real, real. So, so in that respect, he's very good at what he does because he, he just brought real people on. He kept it real. But if you look in him, if you took all the people around him away and it was just him doing a monologue or whatever, I don't know how interesting it would be. It's just some guy. The AVN Awards. Got thrown out. That's the uh, adult video awards, so porn awards. And How do you get thrown out of the porn awards? Uh, oh, you know why? The one that was hosting that year. Lisa Lampanelli. Yes. Uh, and, you know, she, we like each other. We're friends. But during those... Comedy Central roasts, she just had the, when it came to me, I don't do those roasts anymore because they ultimately would turn into the roast of Andy Dick. People think that I've been roasted, but I haven't. I was on the roasts where they're, they, you know, yeah, we might be roasting William Shatner, but let's turn our attention onto this faggot for a minute. Like, can you guys leave me alone? I would relapse on every roast. You can see me on camera stand up and beeline to the bar and start pounding drinks on camera after being sober for a number of months or maybe even a year. They were so hardcore. I'm kind of at 51. I'm so used to it now. And they are always actually funny. And so I can't argue. And Lee, and, but, I, but whatever it is, I'm sure it was a Lisa Lampanelli joke. And so she was hosting that year, and I'm just there, and I'm drunk. And I just barged into her, where's Lampanelli? <laughs> and I just wanted to just, I was kind of like, I was overdoing it and faking it out. But they got freaked out and kicked me out. Lisa, I think, had me removed. Joe Rogan. Good guy, really did well for himself. I was thinking about him recently because I, I think I saw something that he had going. Oh, something. Oh, I think I might be performing with him tonight at the Laugh Factory. I think that's what it is. He's got that on it supplements. I take things like that. In fact, I went to him and said, you're part owner and on it. Can I, I don't know, can you throw me a bone? Can I get some of those supplements? And he's like, Yeah. You can buy him online. <laughs> like, he's kind of a dick. You know, he is. And we had a feud during news radio where he, he would make fun of me for getting high. You're high right now, Andy, in front of the NBC executives. I'm like, fuck, I wasn't. But then if I protested, it seemed like I was. And it was just horrible. It was a nightmare. For five years, making fun of me for drinking, getting high. And now he's the biggest advocate for pot. You know that. Yeah. So that kind of rubs me the wrong way. Because I spent years being tormented and made fun of by him for smoking pot. I got to get over it, to be honest. Seth McFarlane. Well, I love Seth. He's great. He's funny. He's a great guy. Done well for himself. There, I did have a problem when, because he puts me on Family Guy, and that's me when you see Andy Dick, and they're like, oh, they made fun of you on Family Guy. No, I, that was me. I was me. I wrote the line. You know, there's usually one or two lines only. Like, I improvise. That's me. That's my voice. But then there's a, a show, American Dad, and they had the Andy Dick character. You know about that? Yeah, but it wasn't you. It wasn't me. It was Nick Kroll. Like, I told him, I'm like, look, if you, you know, I'll play me. 
I do the best me. <laughs> but but I will tell you, Nick did a damn good job. <laughs> it, it was, I laughed my ass off. And But people think it's me. They're like, you were so fucking funny on American Dad. I'm like, yeah, it wasn't me. It was a Nick Kroll. It's almost like Nick Kroll did it better me. Dancing with the Stars. Best and worst job I've ever had in my life. It was at a time when I needed a little boost in my career uh, in terms of just getting back out there. And for the audience that doesn't know, you can fail on Dancing with the Stars and get knocked out in the first round and you get $125,000. Yeah. You immediately get a bunch of money and then you get more and more and more and more each time you win. If you win, it goes up to like, I think half a million or something. Um, I got about 350 because I got seven out of 10. Seven out of 10 episodes. I was like number fourth. So I wasn't in the top three. I was number four. Just barely made it. And that was because some shit was going down in my private life. You, you asked me earlier, way earlier, when, it, when, when your life, how come it doesn't affect your... It does. I was trying to tell you it does. This is one example. I was sitting backstage on a crate waiting to go dance my faggoty ass off for one of the numbers live. Remember, it's live. Dancing live. It's not my forte. So I'm about to go dancing, and we're, I'm at episode seven. But one of, my, one of my kids was not doing well. So one of them, all of them have had their fair share of bouts with drugs and alcohol. And this one, at this one particular time, I'm not going to say who, was in the hospital. And it, and it was such a weird thing where I'm about to dance Lights are going, and it's all flashy and glittery. I'm probably wearing glitter. And this kid is in the hospital dying. And I said, this is not right. I shouldn't. I'm, I'm done. I'm gonna, and I went to the producers and said, there's stuff going on in my world that's too, too big for me to deal with. I can't be dancing 12 hours a day anymore. I can't do it. I also hated it. I was dancing so hard. I wanted to win so bad that I was spending 10 to 12 hours a day dancing. I have bone spurs in my feet now. Like they're little shards of bone. This right foot is constantly, it feels like it's pins and needles. I damaged myself. Jack Black. Thought about him recently. I think, I think all these things and people you're mentioning, I think about on a daily basis. Thought about Jack yesterday for, I went into a whole reverie about him because we were so close. Before he hit it with Tenacious D, he and I were going on stage. He was doing Tenacious D, then, I, then we came up with this weird side thing called Hellacious A. <laughs> Hellacious. And, and we, you know, we would go on and, you know, I was always busy on TV shows, but he really took Tenacious D and... You know, maybe. it always bugged me that he, I was never in any of the movies. Kind of a little sad to me. Like but, Tropic Thunder. Well, that wasn't his movie, but like that, that, that bugged me. Yeah, yeah. In Tropic Thunder, he kind of played an Andy Dick type character. Yeah, that was that was weird. Yeah, there was a, has have been a lot of things where I'm like, guys, come on, I need work. You know, like when he plays me, well, that was kind of weird. But but more about check. I fucked that one up ultimately because he had this, he has this event 
I, I don't think they do it anymore. It's for autism. They do it on Santa Monica Pier. You know about that. You probably have clients doing it. Mm -hmm. And I was just really, like, really, really drunk one year. And I was in blackout. But I sobered up because he was screaming at the top of his lungs. And I kind of, like, woke up in the middle of being drunk. Like, oh, my God, what did I do? And he, I haven't really talked to him since. Ivanka Trump. She's got real, real nice legs, doesn't she? Real nice legs. Yeah, I touched them on Jimmy Kimmel. They were glittery. She put on the kind of makeup that, that glitters on her legs. Women put like this makeup on their face that kind of shimmers. YouTube it, listeners. YouTube Andy Dick Ivanka Trump, and you can see me get sidetracked by her glistening legs like a raccoon to, to a shiny object. And I just touch her legs and I kind of, but I don't, I don't just like touch them with my fingertips. I kind of stroke them a little. And people would call it groping. I call it flirting. I thought I was a made man. I thought I'm gonna, I'm gonna land this woman. I'm gonna marry her and I'm gonna be a made man. I really had that in my mind. She can't, she's not gonna, she's gonna fall for my charms. And I'm gonna start with, by stroking her leg. I didn't, I wasn't doing anything bad if you ask me, but they thought differently, didn't they? Because they carried me out, security carried me out. But the weird thing about that, by the way, that they must have almost had that planned because a year prior, I shot a scene at Jimmy Kimmel for my movie, my one and only movie I wrote and directed, Danny Roan, first time director where I shot a scene where I'm my character, Danny Roan, is on Jimmy Kimmel, but I pee on Frankie Muniz, you know, Malcolm in the Middle. We had a thing called Malcolm in the Piddle. And I'm peeing on him, and I get carried out by security. And then a year later, I'm getting carried out by security. Arrested versus rehab. Oh, they go hand in hand. Usually you get arrested, and the judge... What they, what they order is for you to go to rehab. So, you know, I learned to, to just, over the years, to just beat the system and just go to rehab before you get arrested. But you can't always predict that. It's, you, you kind of have to know yourself. Like, uh-oh, I'm starting to have that kind of behavior where I don't give a shit. So I better go into rehab before I do something that will get me arrested. Ben Stiller. Another great man, a great fan of Andy Dick. He was my number one and first big fan, and I owe my whole career to Ben. My whole career. Oh, that is why Harris Davidson said, I encourage you to go to L.A., because I did a short film that I auditioned for. In fact, a friend of mine, Jeff Kahn, we were both working at D.B. Kaplan's in the Water Tower of Chicago. I was, he was an actual waiter. I looked up to him because he was a waiter getting tips, and I was working in the, I was the delivery guy. So I was just this, like, lowly delivery guy. It's, the, it's, the, it's like that and busboy. Even busboy was better than what I did. I had to run around town delivering food, not always getting a tip, but I could stop into my agent's in between deliveries and say, don't forget about me, Harry Davidson. 
And I would have the food. I'd have food. I would, I would stop in there first before I deliver the food. But um, Jeff Kahn recommended that I audition for this short film for Ben. And Jeff wanted that part. He's just like, yeah, you should. I, I saw him. Jeff Kahn and Ben Stiller were going down the down escalator. I was going up to work. And I did something funny. And then Ben said, what if we just audition him? And Jeff's like, yeah, you should. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll get you guys in touch. But I know that, 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 that was the, I was the bane of Jeff's existence because I got the part and Jeff didn't. And he remained a waiter at D.B. Kaplan's. No, he actually became a big writer and he's doing very well now. But, but that part in this weird little short film called Elvis Stories, John Cusack's in it, Ben Stiller. I, my scene is with Ben Stiller and it's very funny. And that's what, how he remembered me for the Ben Stiller show. And after the Ben Stiller show, honestly, the rest is history. I got with Brillstein Gray. They said, do you want to do Saturday Night Live? Because they want you. I said, no. There's another one. I said, no, out of fear. I said, I, can't, I could never do that many characters live. Now I could. Now I'm calling them at 51. I'm saying, I, can I do it, please? Now I want to. I have the confidence now. Could you get me on it? That's another story. We could do it. They need some. They need a Phil Hartman-like person. Phil was older. That Leslie Jones mm -hmm. woman. She's forty-nine. This could happen. I could be this weird, like just older guy. Daryl Hammond's older than you. Yeah. David Strickland. Oh, you're hitting hard and low. <laughs> David was a guy that was on another show called Suddenly Susan while I was on news radio. His girlfriend, Tiffany Amber Thiessen, did a guest spot on news radio, so he was coming to the set a lot. We befriended each other, and we got along. Same age. We were both playing these weird side goofy characters on sitcoms. We were both well-liked, and we both liked drugs and alcohol. So we were fast and furious friends. And then I just followed him, and he was good-looking and so cool. I followed him around like a puppy dog, like, let's have fun, let's have fun, let's have fun. Then Tiffany Amber Thiessen broke up with him, and he was heartbroken. You know, and I think it was around this time of year, because the Grammys were on. The Grammys are happening tomorrow night. I don't know when this airs, but the Grammys were about to happen uh, tomorrow for us. And he said, let's go to Vegas. I'm like, yeah, and this is back in the day where I bought a six-pack of Rolling Rock, and I brought it on the plane. You could just bring it on the plane. And I'm drinking it, and we're just drinking, getting high. Long story short, we go to Vegas. He, you know, he went out looking for whatever. He said, you just stay here in the hotel room. I'm going to be right back. And then I'm drinking the beer and smoking pot and watching the Grammys, and I fell asleep, and I wake up the next morning to pounding on the door. It's two detectives and the hotel manager, and, and they're just running around my room. They flush my pot down the toilet. They're like, where's your friend? Where's your friend? I don't know. He said he, he left last night, and you know, they handcuff me. They're like, well, your friend's in a lot of trouble. Your friend's in a lot of trouble. And I'm like, well, what happened? I'm like, I'm thinking he went out streaking or did something weird, right? And then just, just, just. Just out of the blue, just throwing it in my face nonchalant. They said, well, your friend is dead. I just, I fell flat on my face because my hands were handcuffed behind my back. I fell on my face. I just couldn't, didn't know what they were saying. And he had left our, our uh, 
hotel room. He was so, so depressed. I didn't know. I was so high and drunk. He wasn't talking to me about it. And he just, he, he walked two miles, checked into another hotel, and hung himself. No, that's it for that. Phil Hartman. <sighs> First of all, he was a great man. It, it doesn't get any better. That, that, that's the kind of, he was like a surrogate father to me. We were very, very close during news radio. Five years. I went to his house for Thanksgiving, for Christmas, me and my family. He didn't have a lot of people over for Thanksgiving. None, none of the other cast. It was him, he, he and, and my ex, now she's my ex, our kids, his kids. Um, I loved his wife, Bryn. They were all just great people. They used to fight. I remember he would say, you know, I'm, I slept on the boat last night because just because we're fighting so much. And I, I would say, maybe you should break up. I'm breaking up with mine because we're fighting all the time. He's like, you should stay together, Andy. This is the one thing where we didn't agree. I, 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 he said, you should stay together for the kids. And I said, well, I, no, I need to, no. I think we should break up for the kids. It's so miserable. And maybe you should too. And he's like, no, I'm, I'm, we're, gonna, we're staying together for the kids. Didn't really work out. But he was the best person ever, ever. So, so like that there, he was staying together. He was trying so hard to make it work. But she, there was something just off, you know, and it wasn't her. It was the drugs that the doctors were prescribing. It really was. You know that, right? It was Zoloft. She was taking Zoloft and then she stopped taking it. It's when she stopped taking it that she spiraled out of control within days. That kind of shit fucks with you. I've never taken pills for that reason. Never. He was the guy who cared about you the most. And there's people like Lovitz who've just been so mean to you. So mean. Lovitz, the first day, because they actually asked me when Phil died, they said, Andy, do you want to do the show anymore? They knew I probably wouldn't. And I said, you know, when, when Phil died, the show died. I don't know. I don't want to do it. And they all kind of talked to me and they said, you know, if we do one more year, we get syndication and we do have somebody to take his place. And it's a very good friend of Phil's. It's, it's John Lovitz and he's agreed to take his place. And it's, it, 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 it'll, I think it's going to be good and it'll be therapeutic and it'll be, it'll think this is a good thing. And I finally am like, that is true. And everyone else wants to do it. I was the only one that was like, no, there's, Phil is dead. The show is dead. This is, I don't, there's no fucking way. I should have stuck to my guns. I really should have. First day on the set, John Lovitz, the real good friend of Phil, who maybe they were, but I never saw him at Thanksgiving. But maybe they were good friends. You no, know, maybe they were prior during, during Saturday Night Live. I will, I'll never know. He leaned in and whispered, and I, now I look back and I think he was kidding, but I wasn't in the joking mood. He said, I know you killed Phil Hartman. It's like so dark. I wasn't ready for that. So that just colored my whole year of having to work with him, go to the set every day with that guy. And it's because 
of the story that I did do cocaine with Bryn one time, months prior, one time. And, and you know, I'm the first to say, like I said earlier with my brother, I killed my brother because I'm the one that bought his beer. Do you know what I mean? I know that I didn't, and I also didn't kill Phil Harmon, but I, I, I was a player in the game of the whole thing. Like, I was with Strickland when he killed himself. Do you know what I mean? Like, I can't say, I wasn't there. I don't know what you're talking about. I was there, and I do know what you're talking about. He was really depressed, and if I could go back, I would probably remove the drugs and alcohol and be there more as a friend to just listen to him. Same with Phil. Like, drugs and alcohol muddy situations make them shitty. Your proudest moment in show business? Seeing my daughter do it. Really. She's doing these short films lately, and I see myself in her. Like, she's loving it so much. She's like, Dad, can we shoot one today? She wakes me up this morning saying, can I post that one that we shot when we got our hair cut yesterday? Can I post it now? I'm like, mm, maybe we should wait. No, go, yeah, post it now. Because then it'll make us do another one quicker. Like, she's, she has, she's, I'm finding the love of it again through her. And she's fucking good. She's better than me. She's 19. She's a firecracker. Funny as fuck. Go look at her little things. Meg Dick. Although she couldn't get Meg Dick. She, has to, she had to get the name Meg S. Her middle name is Sage Dick. So Meg's, so it's Meg's Dick. <laughs> she hates it, but. That's, that's her name on social media, Meg's Dick. And she posts these fucking little films that are so fucking funny. And she writes them, directs them, edits them. She knows how to edit. Seeing her do it better than I did it, at her age at least, is, makes me more proud than anything that I've ever accomplished. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. Well, the disappointment part happened years later because at the time, there, there's the two, the two big ones are that I said no to Zoolander and that I said no to Saturday Night Live. At the time, it was the right thing to do. There were some things going on in my life for the Zoolander. I just couldn't take something on like that. And, and Saturday Night Live, I was just afraid. So I probably really not, probably could not have done it because I was so afraid. But I just wish I would have just fucking buckled down and bared down did it both of them but then again maybe then I would skyrocket through the roof and get way because what what has happened because I didn't say I've never been a big fucking star you know that I've never been in a big hit never every movie I do it's like hmm that was okay you know, there's some big movies like Old School or Road Trip and some funny movies, but I'm always a smaller character. And any movie that I star in is like kind of mediocre and not that great. So it has kept me kind of humble and hungry to, you know, I'm, I got to have a, some big movie at some point, right? I'd like to win an Oscar. You can. Last question. What advice do you have for the young artist, maybe their family life? They were going from town to town, and they just wanted to figure out how to have the kind of career that you've had. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't listen to other people. Everyone else is going to shit on you. If there's one person out there that says, I like what you're doing, hang on to that. There was, 
for every one person that liked what I was doing, there was 20 people saying, give it up, dude. So don't listen to those people. Listen to your heart and then go for it in your community because you, the, the young people are probably trapped in, in their family life. They're not going to move out of Pittsburgh anytime soon. So get involved. Go look for your community theater. Be an intern at the local radio station. I did that. I was, a, I was actually a DJ at my college from 3 a.m. to 5 a.m. Anything that gets you out there in front of the public kind of, this is, just, this is for actors and whatever, but you can apply it to, any, to anything. Get internships. Just get involved. Don't sit on your fucking ass and go, I can't wait to be famous. It ain't going to happen. It's not going to happen. You've got to get out there. Get out there. Go to your community theater. You don't have a community theater? Guess what? Fucking start one. Go, I'm going to start a little community theater. I have this play. Like, I'm doing a play called Tape. It was a movie that uh, Richard Linkletter directed with Ethan Hawke, and I can't remember who else. Be and I'm doing it because, and I already have actors rehearsing, and I'm directing it. I'm doing it because I can do it at my art gallery. I have an art gallery at the East Town Lofts, 6201 Hollywood Boulevard, around back on Nederlander Way. It's number 3016, and it's called Deke. D, small letter D, little I with an umlaut, two dots, and then CK, Deke. And it's my gallery, and we're doing tape there because tape takes place in, in about an hour all in one room, in a hotel room. So it's kind of just an easy production. Anybody that wants to do, do theater, you can write your own theater, get involved in an improv group, take a class, there's so many things you can do. If the, every town has a church, every church has a basement, and you can put on little plays in the basement of the church. Anyone can do it. Andy Dick, thank you so much. You have been so awesome. Thanks. Amazing. Thanks. I really think we need to talk about you representing me again. Well, uh, we can talk about that anytime. As a matter of fact, Jimmy Miller would regift you to me. <laughs> Maybe I'll be representing Meg's Dick. Oh, yeah, you should. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer and... It's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week. And one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. All right, landing on Joan Peterson from Carlsbad, California. Congratulations, Joan. You are a winner. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. Okay, landing on Derek Mio, five-star review on March 25th, 2016, entitled, Holy Inspirational Shit. 
The review reads, Every time I feel pessimistic or discouraged about the industry, I listen to one of Barry's interviews, and I feel reinvigorated, inspired, and most importantly, filled with love for my craft and others in pursuit of it. Wow. Thank you so much, Derek. Congratulations. You are a winner. Special thanks to our new sponsor, AquaTrue, with the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. Check it out. Go to industrystandardwater.com. Takes you directly to their website. Type in the code 100. Save yourself $100. I have one of these. It's amazing. Start turning your tap water into the best tasting water. Industrystandardwater.com. This has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. As always, if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money, drop that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers, they have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.